Today's episode of Candid Conversations is not suitable for children. Parents, please listen to this podcast without your children present. You may choose to share portions of this podcast with them later, but please listen to it first. Consumed by hate, redeemed by love is something I wanted to do, which I hope will be of help to people and their following Jesus. The main concern is was to try to show that you know, God can save anybody, even the worst person imaginable, and He can work in their lives and change them, make them different, and make them to be, become more and more like Jesus. Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. This week on Candid, I continue my conversation with Thomas Terrence. If you missed last week, please go back and listen to it now. Thomas was a high-level operative in the KKK before being radically transformed by the love of Christ while he was serving a term in prison for attempting to plant a bomb at the home of a prominent Jewish community leader. Last week, Thomas shared how he became active in white supremacy and what led to the bloody shootout with the SWAT team in Meridian, Mississippi. He should have died. Instead, he landed in prison, and it was there he began searching for truth. This week, Thomas shares what has happened since his conversion, how he was led to repent of his racist views as he studied the Bible and grew to know Christ more intimately, and where God has led him since his release from prison. Now, on to our conversation. Well, Thomas, let's pick back up where we left off. You were telling us about your conversion story. Now, my wife and I, when we were in Australia, we heard your story from Amy or Ewing when she was giving a public talk. And um, she had mentioned that there was a lady who was the wife of an FBI agent who had begun to pray for you. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the background of that story. Yes, that was um, Joyce Watts, the wife of the FBI agent Frank Watts, who was involved in my capture, I suppose you could say. And once that shootout occurred there in Meridian and everything was public, she and her prayer group began to pray for me weekly. And I was told that sometimes they would spend hours praying for me, praying for me to be converted Mm. And they did that for two years before I finally came to know Jesus. Mm. It's just an amazing story to me. And I'm, you know, just so grateful to those women. They were not people that you would ever read about in the newspaper, they were just faithful, godly women who met regularly to Mm. pray together for things that they thought were really important in the kingdom of God. And trusted that God could do great things. Yes, they were women of faith. They believed that God answered prayer. Mm. They didn't just throw out prayers and forget about it. They expected answers. And so the Lord did answer that prayer. And then after I was converted, J. Edgar Hoover got word of it. He had what you might call the network of all networks, 
And so he somehow heard about it and he thought it was a scam, you know, to try to escape again. And he sent this agent, Frank Watts, and his partner up to interview me at the prison and try to see what was going on, assess the situation. Right. They had met with me prior when I was in jail in Meridian. They'd come over to try to question me. So I, I'd known them from before. They came and we sat down and talked. And Frank, you know, they asked me, well, what, what's going on in your life? What's, what's happened to you? And I was not a sophisticated person. I was a brand new believer. And um, I just told my testimony. That's all I could do. Right. And they went away scratching their heads. But a couple of months later, Frank had the same experience I did. And he came to really know the Lord, even though he had been a good, faithful, moral man and Southern Baptist like his wife, he really didn't know the Lord. And boy, his life changed dramatically. And uh, he became a witness in the in the FBI. And anyway, uh, we could go on and on about that story. But it's to me, it's a great example of the power of prayer, which the Bible has a lot to say about that yeah. you know, God does answer prayer. And yeah. we're encouraged again and again to pray and to pray with faith and believe God. Well, and in and, and thinking about this, the Lord has really upended your your worldview, the lens through which you looked at everything. What were some of the, the feelings and ideas that you had to sort of sort through in this sort of post-salvific time in your life? Well, of course, I you know, had a lot of sorrow and heartache about all that had gone on and the um, loss of life uh, with Kathy Ainsworth there in that first shootout in Meridian and and then the fellow that escaped with me that was killed in the second one. So that was percolating in my mind and heart. The Lord was working in me too to uh, bring me to a place of uh, loving my neighbors. And it just came, I think it, it when I was converted, a lot of these things just happened rearranged my mind and heart. Like one particular thing that might be of interest is, um, as I mentioned earlier, I had come to realize that the whole racist thing was, was false. It was based on false assumptions and also the whole anti-Semitic ideology and conspiratorial thinking. So, that defused, I suppose you'd say, my racism and anti-Semitism. So I no longer held those attitudes uh, against black people and Jewish people. But there's a world of difference between that and actually loving your brother, loving your yes. neighbor. Right. You know? One sort of passive versus active. Right. Right. And so... God was working in me to deal with this, this whole thing of, of loving, loving my neighbor. And the way he did it, particularly on the race thing with 
African-Americans. And this was a huge thing in my life, reading the scripture. I had plenty of time on my hands. Right. You know, I could read the Bible six, eight hours a day. I loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. And Paul talks about being transformed through the renewal of your mind. Mm. And the chief instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to transform us is the Scripture. Mm. Not the only thing, but it's the chief thing. And so I was reading along in First John, in chapter 4, and I came to the end of the chapter, and it says this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, mm. he is a liar. Yes. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And that got my attention. I started thinking, well, black people that know the Lord, they are my brothers and mm. sisters. And I should love them. And just black people in general, they're my neighbors. I should love them. Right. You know, and so it, it sort of registered on me. This this was new for, for me. I yeah. never read anything like this or had thoughts like this. So, I mean, the listener might think, well, dude, where have you been all your life? Right, uh, right. But, uh, you know, I've had very little real teaching of the Bible. Mm. And so this was sort of new information to me. And. The Lord just, you know, it became a, a very clear thing, like light shining into my heart about this particular issue. And it was settled. Once I saw what God said and yeah. what he wanted, it was done. And then the Lord worked in me in such a way that I was able to be free of, of any negative attitudes and found myself actually there in the prison working the first guy that I had any dealings with about discipleship and about Christian faith was a black guy there in the prison. He was um, a cook, and he and I began talking, and I discovered that he had just become awakened to the Bible and was reading it and seemed to have a hunger for the Lord. So he was asking me questions. He knew that in my cell I had a stack of books and Bibles and stuff like that about Christianity, about the faith. And so he thought, well, maybe I could answer some of the questions he was pondering. And the truth of the matter was I, I was only one step ahead of him. Right. But um, I did have some things that I could say to him. And that's actually a good message for a lot of people. Mm. No matter where you are, yeah. you've got a message. Yeah. If you were just born again yesterday, you've got a huge message for the vast majority of people in this country. Yeah. You don't have to wait. You don't have to go get a PhD in religion. Right. <laughs> you don't have to be certified. So anyway, I passed on to him what I knew to say in response to his questions. And Little did I know that that experience was the beginning of something I would be doing for the rest of my life, wow. uh, working with men uh, to help them grow as disciples of Jesus. Mm. So it was uh, quite amazing how the Lord started me off like that. And then I had relationships after that uh, with 
other black guys in the prison. One of them was a civil rights lawyer who was serving a sentence there. And he and I became great friends. It seems like, you know, the Lord really opened that door immediately to show you, in at least in your specific case, and I would venture to say in most, is that there's an element of this sharing of good news, and for those who are in Christ, a discipleship. Yes, yes. It's sharing good news and seeking the good of the other person. You know, we've got these flawed ideas of what it means to love, love your neighbor. And uh, as if, you know, the word these days, the word love is typically associated with feelings and emotions and sentiment. And there's a place for that, for sure. But uh, the word agape isn't chiefly about feelings. It's chiefly about the will, about actions. And you see this, for example, when when Jesus says, whatever you want someone to do for you, do that for them. It's taking action to seek the good of the other person. Mm. Now, sure, um, feelings come along. They have a place in it. But the heart of agape is really acting in the best interest of the other person. Yeah. Uh, you see the example in the parable of the um, Good Samaritan, you know. Right. The Good Samaritan acts. He doesn't uh, sit around probing his heart to see what he's feeling like. He just jumps in and acts right. to help somebody in need. And, and it's not a reciprocal thing. It's not that, uh, you know, the Jewish man did something for him. In fact, he owed him nothing. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, jumping in here was, number one, dangerous on that road. And secondly, it was costly. He had to put out some money for the man's care and keeping after he took him to the inn. Mm. And then another thing that people don't think too much about, I'm afraid, is that this was actually a Samaritan. Mm that did this. A Samaritan did for the Jew in distress what the Jew desperately needed. So it is, the Samaritans were a mixed race people. Right. And they were also heterodox. They believed error and the Jews hated them with a passion. Right. So there's some lessons there. And the point here I'm trying to make is that well, like C.S. Lewis said, don't wait until you feel some emotion towards somebody. Just act. Do the right thing. The, the feelings will come along later. Yeah. So your foundation of Christ has been laid, and you're reading the Word, and you're building a structure. A word that's been used a lot lately is, is deconstruction. And we've heard a lot about prominent and not-so-prominent Christians who are beginning to deconstruct their faith. I wonder if you've spent any time sort of thinking about that as here is someone who, you know, your, your faith has been constructed and built. You know, do you feel like it's um, those people, perhaps their foundation that was laid was an incorrect foundation? Perhaps it wasn't Christ. Maybe it was a, a feeling or a, a ritual or something like that. I'm just just in looking and, and seeing the comparison with the trajectory of today as compared to you know, get the story of your own life, and of course, all of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ? It's a good question, Jonathan. Uh, for me, it was sort of a blank slate as I began to 
feed on the word of God and then began to read theology and apologetics and things like that. I loved it. And I couldn't get enough of it. But here, here's something that may be relevant to your question. You know, we all tend to play to our strengths. Right. And I was a fairly bright guy. And using using my cognitive abilities was something that was very much uh, active at that point. And so what I did was consume a lot of biblical truth, orthodox, solid biblical truth. But here's the problem. There's more to knowing God than simply your intellect and simply understanding cognitively what the scripture teaches. Jesus says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And that word know, gnosko, in that context, it's talking about not simply intellectual grasp knowledge of facts about God and about Jesus, although that's certainly included, absolutely. Right. But it's talking about a relational dimension to it, a personal knowing. You know, I I can know a lot about George Washington. Right. I can be the expert in the in America on George Washington, but I don't have a relationship with George Washington. I don't know him personally. Yeah. Um, and that's the way it can be with some of us that um, maybe we were raised in a Christian context, a church where we heard a lot of Bible teaching. And uh, so we have biblical knowledge, good, solid biblical knowledge. But in terms of actually knowing Christ, that part has not been nurtured and developed nearly as much. You know, this it's really a knowing, it's a knowing, a personal I-thou kind of relationship where we're knowing in our daily experience, increasingly knowing Christ, knowing the Father, growing, growing to trust them more and to, to love and obey them more. This is the core. This is the heart of um, authentic Christian life in this world. And of course it involves, absolutely it involves correct understanding of scripture, but that's only one part. You know, we're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to trust him with all our heart. And a lot of times we just say, oh, the heart, that's the emotions and the feelings. No, 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 no. And biblical thinking, Hebrew thought, for example, the heart is not yeah. simply the emotions. emotions the heart is right. the whole person. It's all that you are. It's, it it's includes, the yeah, the will, the intellect, the emotions, the desires. All of those things are sort of woven together. That's what the heart is. And so if you overdevelop the intellect to the neglect of these other things, you're going to be in a, an unhealthy position spiritually. And same is true if you overdevelop the emotions Yes. And um, so we probably all know people 
um, and churches where the emotions are very strongly prominent. Mm. That's great. Emotions are important and a vital part, but we can't neglect the mind, you know, and the intellect and certainly the will. And there are folks that are, they're geared toward the will, you know, and they don't waste time talking about thinking about anything. Just go do something, you know? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I'm going on and on about this. But no, but this this is a, a good, healthy trajectory today because, I mean, think about th- this is sort of the dichotomy that we're seeing or even a trichotomy, if you will, in, in our nation today, right? So so even within churches, you can walk into a church and recognize whether this is a mind church or, or I can walk in and recognize that this is clearly an emotion-driven church. And so with those trying to control you in some sense – so that's created a divide within our churches. So what would you say in your years of experience in, in working closely with churches, how do you come with resolution to that? How do we navigate that sort of difficult terrain well in our churches and in our own lives? Well, I think that, first of all, the church is desperately in need of revival and reform in America and in Europe. Um, at least I'm more familiar with those areas, but that revival is not simply a bunch of excitement. And it's, it's, it's not as in the South when I was growing up a, a week long a series of, of special meetings to try to um, uh, challenge people in their faith. I mean, it's, uh, it's something much different than that. Uh, uh, authentic revival in history is a, a subject people would do well to to study, but uh, the change we need really needs to come in the leadership, the pastors and uh, the elders of the churches really need to be touched by a new vision of what it means to know God and to be faithful disciples of Jesus and to be about the mission of, of his kingdom in the world. So, Fundamentally, it's personal life. It's the starting point. And, you know, a lot of times we're so caught up in activities, religious activities, church activities. You know, we're kind of on a treadmill and we're neglecting our our hearts. And so that's where I would say the um, starting point is, is for leaders to st- do some self-examination before God, take time away, just take a retreat, some days away, fast and pray and seek God and seek personal revival yeah. um, and really keep that going. I mean, Paul, not long before he was executed, before he was beheaded, we've heard a lot about beheadings over in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Paul was Roman citizen, so he was given the, privilege of a beheading as opposed to the arena or uh, uh, the cross. So several years before he was um, beheaded, he wrote this epistle to the Philippians. So Paul has known Jesus now after a radical encounter on the Damascus Road, life-changing, and several times had encounters with Jesus after that through dreams and um, whatnot. 
he's still saying in Philippians 3.10 that his passion is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And again, that word know in Greek, it is talking about a personal knowing. It's not talking about simply doctrinal knowledge, as important as, as doctrinal knowledge is. Yeah. He's talking about that and he's saying to people, well, that's a really important section of Philippians to read. He says, um, you know, I, I really desire perfection, but I haven't found it yet, <laughs> but I'm still going and forgetting what lies behind. I'm striving and pushing forward for the, uh, the prize. And, um, and so that kind of attitude, you know, of a continuing hunger for Christ uh, not for success in ministry. If God gives it, fine. But you can be successful in ministry and not even know the Lord. Mm. All you have to do is read Matthew 7, verses, um, well, 21 to 23, I think. Jesus says, on the day of judgment, many, not a few, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not cast out demons and do all kinds of miraculous things. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Mm. And of course, the classic example of this is Judas, who went around with the 12, preaching the kingdom. Knew the truth. Preaching the truth, yeah. And, you know, these people that say, Lord, Lord, I mean, that's an orthodox confession of faith. These weren't a bunch of theological, well, liberals, I guess you'd say, now, the, these people were solid, and yet, and Judas was part of casting out demons and you know, like the rest of the disciples, and yet he never knew Christ. And so, you know, it's so crucial that that be our chief concern is to grow in the knowledge and love of the Father and the Son and the experience of the Holy Spirit daily in our lives. Mm-hmm being transformed, you know, it's Corinthians, Second Corinthians 3.18, where it talks about as we behold Christ, as we behold him, we are being transformed from glory to glory. I should just read that verse so I get it uh, exact, because it's one of the key verses about this whole business of, of transformation. And, um, doesn't get a lot of attention, I, I'm afraid, not the attention it deserves. Mm-hmm. Paul says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So, you know, that really lies at the heart of things, focusing We know the Father through Jesus. He's the clearest representation of the Father to us. And Paul is talking about the importance here of beholding the glory of Jesus and being transformed into his image and likeness by degrees. It happens over time. It's not not instant. It's the work of a lifetime, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And that's what... Every believer needs, including and especially pastors and church leaders. But, you know, evangelicalism 
is sadly focused too much on gifts and too little on graces. Mm. And then people get put in these positions because they have gifts of preachings, teaching, whatever, that are quite strong and people turn out and love to listen to them and all the rest. But where is the attention to the heart, to the soul, and to really knowing God? That's often gets pushed to the to the side, to the periphery, in the midst of all the success uh, and the acclaim and uh, the way that feeds pride and narcissism, which is a an epidemic in the Christian church these days and in ministry. Well, even in the Second Corinthians passage that you're using, there's a lot of we language. And kind of coming back to some of the things that we're talking about, these sort of dichotomies that we see between churches and and divisions that have created. And, and one of the things we, you know, you've even written about in your book is is seeing the cultural climate of America and seeing some of this fabric and um, commonality in the church being sort of frayed at the edges and, and frayed all over the place. So we're seeing, and, I, and I'm not trying to get you to say anything you don't want to say, so we can speak in generalities, but you know, we are seeing a lot of this cultural climate issue in America where things have become very political and very polarizing. How do we as believers together in, in uniformity in some sense, uh, particularly within the, as you use the phrase, the graces that God has given us, which includes a body of believers, uh, uh, you know, a, a family to which we can belong and and um, and share in those doctrines of grace and things together. You know, how do we go back and 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 work against some of that cultural climate that is wearing down on people? Well, you've raised something that is crucial. Um, what I've been describing here about really knowing God and knowing Christ, it happens in a context. It's not yes. something that occurs uh, in a some, some, some house out on the top of a mountain all alone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there can be a time for that, but it happens in a context, and the context is the body of Christ, the mm-hmm. church. And you see very clearly in Acts, um, just starting off immediately, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the gospel message, and the conversion of 3,000 people. And the Holy Spirit leads them together to do four things. And it says that they devoted themselves to these four things. And that word in the Greek is a strong word. It means that they gave themselves steadfastly to each of these things, not casually. Hmm. They gave themselves steadfastly uh, to these four things. And the, the first off was the apostles' teaching. You know, that was teaching about Jesus and his message and his works and uh, uh, other things related to the kingdom. But um, it was, you know, it was solidly grounded uh, in the word. And that comes first, the apostles' teaching. And then the fellowship, to your point here, the next thing is to the fellowship. The fellowship is not coffee and donuts between services. The fellowship is a koinonia. It's the sharing of life mm. at all levels, you know? Uh, and that's what they did. They shared their lives. They shared their possessions with anyone that had need, you know? 
it's uh, anybody in the church. They, there was not a poor Christian among them, so to speak, because of that. So this translates into something that's really crucial for us to grow in grace, and that is relationships that have some depth to them, seeking together to know the Lord and takes the form of small groups uh, where you're studying the word together, where you're sharing your burdens together, bearing one another's burdens, praying together. Crucial part of what we're talking about. And it's often the case that the Holy Spirit works in us through somebody else. If we will have that kind of relationship and, you know, there's a, it's been said we meet, we meet God and others. Yeah others in the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells in all true believers and he can speak and he can use the gifts he's given them to minister to us. And likewise, we can use the gifts he's given us to minister to them. That's what this whole thing about spiritual gifts uh, revolves around. The gifts are not given for us. Right, for your own edification. They are enablements. The Holy Spirit allots to us to seek the common good, to help our brothers and sisters, to love, to serve one another in love. And so, you know, you don't need to go through a course on all of this. Uh, But my point here is that in this fellowship, you need that fellowship as a context where kind of womb, so to speak, um, where you grow. And um, the next thing is the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread in this context, it's, it's not simply breaking a loaf and everybody having a piece. Yeah, sort of a modern communion ideology, right? Yeah, I mean, the thing Jesus did with the 12, I mean, it was in the context of breaking bread and and drinking wine. It was the context of a meal, and that's the way it was in the early church. It was kind of an agape meal. In the midst of that, they had communion. And so this is talking about kind of communion, worship, as another key part of it. And finally, the prayers. And uh, so those four things are like a four-cylinder engine for the Christian life, you know, and you need all four cylinders working together in full strength. And these things I'm describing are called, in some circles, they're called spiritual disciplines. More correct, I think, term would be means of grace, Hmm. means that God has given us to grow in grace. And so for all I was talking about earlier about knowing the Lord— it happens in this context. That's now. Can you grow outside of that? Well, yes, you can to some extent, but it's not going to be strong, robust, healthy growth. Yeah. It's not going to be what God calls us to. We're we're missing out on His best, but um, that is crucial for us. And you know, we will be able to thrive and flourish in that kind of a context. Of course, when I'm talking about a church, I'm talking about a place where they really truly believe that the Bible is the word of God and they preach it as such. And, you know, there's a a love for Christ and love for one another. That's the kind of thing we are uh, wanting to be in or as close as we can find. Yeah. And that really pushes against some of the narrative that we hear today. You know, we, we hear a lot about systems. And so we, we, we talk about the, the systemic racism and, 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 you know, sort of Marxist ideology and, and the, the, the systems that are against people and for people. But it's really that agape, koinonia, you know, these, these things, these biblical concepts that really Christ instituted that kind of shatter through a lot of the ideology behind the systems. 
and really pushes a, a completely different narrative than from kind of what you hear from left and right, at least in terms of the political spectrum. You, you know, Christianity has really created it, its, its own separate, unique ideology concepts, uh, view of imagio dei, you know, the image of God, uh, image bearers. It, it's really the, the thing that's pushed against all of that. It certainly is. I think it's so good that you call attention to that. We we need to rise above thinking in terms of left or right and think in terms of the kingdom of God yeah. and God's perspective. That needs to rule over everything else. And mm-hmm. so many of us have been hijacked by uh, ideologies of the left or the right, uh, even religious ones. Uh, you know, living in the times we are in is is perilous for the Christian life uh, and in other ways certainly as well. Um, there's this swirling vortex of cultural, social, political, racial conflict. And, you know, we're... We're fallen human beings. Uh, even if we're born again, we're, we still have the baggage to deal with uh, from, from the past. And we can be hooked by these things and drawn off down a path that takes us in a direction that we may later look back and regret and pulls us away from Christ. And, you know, what I see is a lot of anger and hatred even uh, bubbling up on all sides. And, um, you know, where is the love of Jesus in the midst of all this? You know something is wrong when you are being drawn away from the love of Christ and the love of your neighbor, regardless of what their views are. I mean, if if God could save a far-right extremist like me, and I was to the right of Attila the Hun... Well, why is it hard for us to think that God could save a liberal right, or a socialist or a progressive or, you know, a leftist, a Marxist? Uh, yeah. God can do anything. And he has, in fact, saved some people exactly like that. There are stories, real credible stories of the Lord saving people like that. Yeah. And I think I fear that many of us have fallen into the mindset that, oh, those people are hopeless. We're not responsible for trying to be a good witness to them and evangelize them and love them and speak the gospel to them and um, be friends with them and reach out to them. They're beyond hope. God can't reach them. Mm. I think that has seeped into the minds of a lot of folks, and they are the enemy. You know, they, they're just the, the enemy. We need to hate them and destroy them. You know? Well, OK, if you want to define them as the enemy, that's fine. Open your Bible to the Sermon on the Mount, chapter yeah. five. Yeah. Jesus said, love your enemies. Mm. You know, a lot of people wish that weren't in the Bible, but it's, right. it is. And um, it's like Abraham Lincoln said. He was asked about his enemies, and he said, I don't have enemies. (laughs) And the question was, well, how in the world can you not have enemies? Well, I make them my friends. (laughs) (laughs) 
And uh, you can be friends with liberals or progressives. You don't have to believe what they believe. You can be friends with people that are very different in their thinking and living. You know, you can be friendly to people and you can be loving to them and be light in the darkness, the darkness which they are living in. In fact, we're commanded to do so. Yeah, and I think I think the lack thereof shows can show our lack of obedience to Christ because we we think we know what's better. I mean, it's all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Lord, you've said this, but I'm I'm choosing to do it this way because I think that this is the more correct way. Yes, <laughs> Jonathan, we're we're in a mess. <laughs> we're in a mess in the church and. Um, but the good news is, and that each one of us in the church is a mess, but the good news is that God is in the business of cleaning up messes. Amen to that. We just need to turn to him. I'd be remiss if I were to uh, leave people hanging on your story. We've kind of gone down the issues of the day and, and some of those things. But, uh, you know, I'm not calling you in prison. Your story continued on. Your faith grew. You know, I wonder if you could just sort of talk us through that last sort of bit of transition and then even to the things that you're doing today. Yeah. Well, as I uh, was saying before, I went off on the rabbit trail. Um, You know, I was really immersing myself in study and loving it. But what I found is that the sounder and sounder I got the drier and drier I got. (laughs) I came to a point where I began to realize that uh, I needed to really seek to know the Lord in a a deeper way. And uh, and I've elaborated a bit on that. Um, I'm still in that journey of trying to know the Lord. It's been 50, over 50 years now since he first opened my eyes. And it's, it's like a, a, Christian leader, now deceased, uh, many years ago, he said, getting to know God is a long, slow business. Mm-hmm. And I have found that it, it is. It's not something happens overnight to know him better and better. It's something we need to stay with. And that's what I've been trying to do is to be faithful day by day and to really seek to grow in grace. And the Lord has helped me and I've stumbled plenty and fumbled and muddled along various times and other times I've made more rapid progress, but God's been faithful and he has done some amazing things. I should have spent, well, I got, I went to prison with 30 years and then after I escaped, they gave me five more. So, I had a pretty stiff sentence there uh, to deal with, but God had a different plan for my life. So he worked in some amazing ways to release me after just eight years of that sentence. I may have gotten out at 10 years. I don't know, but um, the Lord intervened and I was able to, it was kind of a miracle story too, but I was um, able to go to the University of Mississippi and the Lord blessed me there. I I love study. I could have stayed at Ole Miss the rest of my life and enjoyed academics, (laughs) but um, the Lord had other plans and he 
brought me to the Washington area where I've been for the last 43 years. He's given me opportunities to minister. I started off in campus ministry and really didn't know which end was up, but the Lord helped me and amazingly uh, brought some good fruit out of it. Uh, Then I sort of got to the level of my incompetence and realized I, I need more training, more education be able to do a better job of this. And uh, so I went to seminary. That was a, a time of real growth for me. It, it wasn't just intellectual. It certainly had that component to it. It was very good, but spiritual growth and the, the Lord just kept working, um, brought me under the influence of some really good mentors like Richard Lovelace, who was a professor at Gordon-Conwell, I did not attend Gordon-Conwell, but through friends, I got to know Richard, and he had a big impact on my life, and a number of others. And Dr. J. Edwin Orr is another great soul that had a big impact on me. He's the world's foremost authority on revival, seminary professor like Richard. Anyway, I, I could go on and on about the ways God has worked to give me um, opportunities to grow and to serve. You know, after seminary, I did some teaching and work with um, Richard Lovelace and some others uh, places around the country. And, but eventually I came around to, I did some in, teaching work in the city, a school for urban mission that I was able to organize for college students, uh, come get some training about world missions which was going urban. And then um, I was called to be a co-pastor at a church in Washington, D.C. And that was just an amazing experience. I was there for about five years. and Great, great experience of uh, growing Mm -hmm. myself and uh, working with some uh, wonderful elders. and, And that was a racially diverse church. It was. It was, although, you know, and um, in the interest of full disclosure, as they say these days, a lot of churches that are described as interracial are mostly white with a few people of other uh, ethnicities. And and that was certainly the case uh, here. We had some African-Americans and uh, a few Hispanic people and Asian folks, uh, but mostly white. But um, it was nonetheless a, a good a good experience and where there was lots of love. People loved one another in that church. And mm-hmm. it's carrying on now. Now that, uh, there's an African-American pastor and uh, a white pastor together and the elders are mixed. Wow. Uh, and there's more mixing in the congregation. I would say it's lots more people of of different um, ethnic backgrounds and uh, focus is still on Christ and on the word and missions and just great. I don't attend there anymore and not really involved, but it's good to see how God works. And he knows how to take care of, of his church. Jesus said, I'm building the church. Gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, and what are the things that are keeping you busy these days? What are, what are sort of the projects you're working on? After the church, I was called to 
work at the C.S. Lewis Institute. So that kept me busy for quite some time from 1998 until 2020, I guess it was. Basically doing, designing programs for discipleship and leading a discipling program, year-long in-depth discipling program for men and women here in the Washington area. And uh, that has been a an amazing experience. Uh, I had no clue where that was going when I started, um, but it has grown to, I think we've had a thousand people here in the Washington area over the 20 plus years. And um, then it started growing. And I think we were in 16, last I heard 16 cities, one in Toronto, one in Belfast, we have one in London, and then over in India as well. There's several cities, large cities in India where uh, we have some work going. It's all focused on one thing, and that is discipleship. Yeah. Knowing, loving, following, serving Jesus. It's not a big, high-flying, highly promoted kind of thing. Uh, we, we're not out trying to plant flags around the earth. We just pray that the Lord will cause it to grow it wherever he wants it to grow, and people come to us. We don't go to them. Yeah. So we're just trying to be simple followers of Jesus. He said, go make disciples. And that's yep. what we're trying to do. That's right. And so that's what I've been about all these years, whether working at the church or at the campus or with C.S. Lewis or whatever. It's about making disciples. Mm. So I've been doing some writing of the book, Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love, is something I wanted to do, which I hope will uh, be of help to people and they're following Jesus. I mean, that's yeah. the main concern is was to try to show that, you know, God can save anybody, even the worst person imaginable, and he can work in their lives and change them, make them different and make them to become more and more like Jesus. And that's basically what the book is about. Yeah. Let me ask you this. What is the typical reaction when people have either read your book or they find out a little bit about your story? I'm sure you've gotten sort of across the spectrum response to this radical, you know, clearly Christ-centered transformation in your life. What are what are sort of the reactions that stand out to you? Well, probably the thing I hear most frequently is, wow, that's amazing. It sounds like the Apostle Paul. Well, I would never want to put myself in, in the company of the Apostle Paul. But the fact is that Paul was a religious terrorist hmm. and also part of a lynching with Stephen and the stoning of Stephen. Yeah. And he's a great example that God can change anybody. Yeah. Well, again, I'm not putting myself in his company, but... There are many, many, many other people that have experienced the same kind of grace that transforms. I mean, Augustine was a sex addict and uh, immersed in philosophies and heretical beliefs and everything else. And God plucked him out of that and made him arguably the most influential thinker in the history of the church. And you could go on and on with things like that, Augustine... Francis of Assisi is another great example. 
and on up to modern times, you know, somebody like Chuck Colson. Yeah. And, you know, what's going on here is simply what Paul described in First um, Timothy chapter 1. And um, sometimes I say, well, this is part of God's marketing plan. <laughs> that may be a little sacrilegious. I'm not sure I should keep saying that. But Paul says um, in First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And so, I mean, essentially what Paul is saying is that the Lord saved me as an example for others so that they would have hope. If he could save me, he can save them. It doesn't matter where you are. The Lord can reach you. And so the Lord saved Paul. He saved lots of other people that we look at as, oh, wow, what an exciting, extraordinary testimony. Well, God is just simply displaying his grace. Mm to encourage the lost and help people see that there's hope for them no matter where they are. Yeah. And so that's kind of my story, you know. I mean, there's nothing special about me, you know, to be sure, but there's a lot that's special about God, and that's what I'm trying to um, point people to. Well, amen to that. Well, Thomas, I do want to say thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, and um, discuss some insights with us uh, in the world that we are faced with each and every day. Thank you so much. Well, you are welcome, Jonathan, and thank you for giving me the opportunity. And I just uh, pray that the Lord will use it in some way to glorify himself and help his people and also to get the attention of those who don't know him yet. Well, amen to that. Thomas Terrence, thank you so much for being on Candid Conversations. Thank you. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. While there, please leave a review. It does help people to find us. And perhaps next episode, we will mention you on the show. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.